When it comes to roads, there are different types. Dirt roads and paved roads. Country roads and superhighways. Back alleys and cobblestone streets. And there are also some famous roads. Wall Street, Pennsylvania Avenue, Sunset Boulevard, even our own Peachtree Street, the German Autobahn. One day when we got some time, I'll tell you about my story of driving on the German Autobahn. Boardwalk and Park Place, and of course, the Yellow Brick Road. There are even famous roads in the Bible. In Acts chapter 9, the angry Rabbi Saul became a follower of Jesus on the road to Damascus. In Luke 24, the risen Lord walked with his two disciples on the road to Emmaus. In Acts chapter 8, Philip met an Ethiopian on the road to Gaza. But of all the roads, biblical and otherwise, the most famous is the Via Della Rosa. It's the path that Jesus took from Pilate's judgment hall to a hill called Golgotha to the tomb of a rich man. Via Della Rosa is Latin for the way of sorrows, and indeed it was. Today, I want you to walk with me down the Via Della Rosa. I would prefer if I could charter an airplane and fly us all to Jerusalem's old city. We could explore its arches and its stone streets, even walk the alleyways together. And yet there... In Jerusalem, there are Jerusalemites who comb those streets every day and never feel the importance of the events that we'll discuss this morning. Likewise, there are people who read John 19 and take for granted what once occurred. And this is why I'm praying that something else happens with us today. As we read John's account of the cross of Jesus, I hope that as we read, as we study, I'm praying that it hits us. He did it for me. From time to time this morning, we're going to push pause on our study, and we're going to take a moment to whisper to ourselves, He did it for me. For if we understand the real message of John 19, there'll be tear stains in our Bible on these very pages. Well, recall where we're at in Jesus' final hours. There was a scuffle in the garden. Jesus was arrested. Then he was tried before the Jews at the house of Caiaphas. Afterwards, he was taken to the Roman governor, Pilate. As a Passover present, Pilate was willing to release a prisoner. The Jews choose a brigand over Jesus. Well, the story continues now in chapter 19. So then, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. This was the precursor for crucifixion. It was called the halfway death. The ordeal was so brutal that many victims never survived. This scourging was carried out with a flagellum. It was a whip consisting of 12 to 13 leather thongs attached to a single handle. A lead ball was placed at the ends of the cords to weigh them down. Pieces of glass or metal, or bone were embedded in the thongs between the ball and the handle. The victim was tied by the wrist, and he was dangled about a foot off the ground. The beating consisted of 39 lashes at full force. 
It was carried out by professional, hardcore executioners accustomed to the sight of blood and screams of pain. These men had callous consciousness. The first blows caused welts on the shoulders and the back. Oh, by the seventh or eighth blow, the glass and the metal had begun to slice into the skin layers and were churning up muscle. It was not uncommon for a rib bone to fly off the body after a blow. The victim's back became the texture of hamburger. When the beating was over, the victim was cut down. His body hit the pavement in a puddle of his own urine and feces and sweat and blood. The ancient historian Eusebius, he writes of the martyrs who endured these kinds of beatings. He says they were torn by scourges down to deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, their entrails and organs were exposed. Medical doctor William Edwards gives this description of a scourging victim. He says the iron balls would cause deep contusions. The leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Let that sink in for a moment. Quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. After this, Jesus literally looked like a sacrificial lamb. Now I want you to close your eyes and I want you to whisper, He did it for me. Verse 2. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on His head. These thorns were briars. They were sharp, pointed needles. There are several species of Jerusalem plants that grow such thorns. And the torturers didn't lightly lay this crown on Jesus' head. They smashed it and twisted it into place. They literally screwed the needles into his scalp like little daggers. It caused blood to flow down Jesus' disfigured face. Here is the only crown King Jesus ever wore, a crown of thorns. You know, since it was man's sin that brought thorns and thistles into an originally perfect world, now in bearing the sin of the world, it was symbolically fitting for Jesus to be crowned with a wreath of thorns. And then they put on him a purple robe, and they said, Hail, King of the Jews, all in an attempt to mock him. And they struck him with their hands. The prophet Isaiah, he speaks prophetically of an additional gory detail not mentioned in the Gospels. Isaiah 50 verse 6 is a prophecy actually quoting Jesus 700 years before his first coming. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. When my kids were babies, I had a beard. And at the time, they would reach up with their little fingers and they would get their fingers stuck down in my beard and then they would grab a hole, a handful, a beard, and jerk. And it hurt. But imagine now grown men ripping out your beard yanking out handfuls of skin and blood and flesh. 
Close your eyes now and whisper, He did it for me. Today, when you go to Old Jerusalem, you can visit the place where this scourging took, occurred. It's called the Lithostratus, which means raised pavement. This was part of the fortress of Antonio, Pilate's judgment hall, and the Roman headquarters on the Temple Mount. Today, the pavement is several feet below street level, but ex- excavations allow you to walk on the stones where Jesus was actually scourged. In fact, those stones, their reddish tint, give the impression that they're stained with blood. In a sense, they are. It always amazes me. I think Jesus' DNA is down in the crevices between those stones. For me, the lithostratus is holy ground. It's a place for reflection. Whenever we're there, we always pause as long as we can to take in what happened there. An amazing discovery was found at the lithostratus. Carved into the stones are lines and circles that made up a game that Roman soldiers would play with their victims during a crucifixion. It wasn't unique to Israel. In fact, they found Roman outposts all around the empire that have this game engraved in the stones. It's called the king's game. It was actually a game that mocked the victim and entertained the callous soldiers as they carried out the crucifixion. This was why they twisted the crown of thorns on Jesus' brow while they threw the purple robe on him. It was all part of the game. Here's a picture from the Lithostratus. You'll notice the circle represents the king's crown. The letter B is the initial for basilicus, which is Latin for king. The scorpion is the symbol of the Roman legion. The double square is actually the dice that the soldiers tossed in playing the game. There's also a horizontal line that represents the victim's life. And later, a sword crosses that line, which indicates where in the game the victim loses his life. This all adds to the horror of what was done to our Lord Jesus. Imagine, they played a game with God's Son. They were making sport out of killing God. Verse 4, Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. In Latin, it's the phrase, Ecce homo. Today, Pilate's words are a famous phrase. They challenge the skeptic to examine the majesty and miracles and the identity of Jesus. If you take it all in, if you make the effort to behold the man, your doubts will flee and your faith will grow. You'll fall down and you'll worship Jesus as King and Lord and God. But when Pilate first uttered these words, they were an attempt to conjure up sympathy for Jesus. For as cruel as it seems, this awful scourging that Pilate inflicted on our Lord was his attempt to engineer Jesus' release. He was thinking, how could anyone with a shred of decency not pity a man who just endured such torture? Surely the Jews will say enough and mercifully set Jesus free. But verse 6, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him. 
crucified. Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The governor wanted no part in this lynching. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. Pilate didn't know what to make of Jesus. According to Matthew 27, verse 19, Pilate's wife, history knows her as Claudia Procula, had sent word to her husband concerning Jesus, having nothing, have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Imagine getting that note from your wife. It's what Pilate received from his wife. That, along with the power of Jesus' presence, along now with his claim of being God's only son, this all combined to shake up Pilate. He wants to placate the Jews. That's his job. But he can't escape the searching gaze of this man named Jesus, the power of his presence. Pilate is a politician. He's a professional compromiser. Why won't the Jews work with him? I'm sure he's sick. Verse 9. And he went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? I'm sure at this point Jesus wasn't interested in chit-chat. Jesus isn't going to release any new information to Pilate until Pilate obeys what he already knows to be true. In fact, why should Jesus talk to anyone who won't obey what he's already been told or what he's already told you? Could that be the reason he isn't speaking to you? Have you done what he's already said? Well, Pilate tries to threaten Jesus next, flex his Roman muscle, push Jesus around. He says, do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Pilate thinks he's in control, but he's just a pawn in a bigger drama. Everything is now unfolding according to God's purpose. In reality, it's not Jesus who's on trial before Pilate. It's Pilate who's on trial before Jesus. Jesus adds the, adds the observation. He says, Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Jesus almost empathizes with the difficulty of Pilate's, Pilate's predicament. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Josephus, the Jewish historian, records that the Jews had already been complaining to Rome about Pilate's heavy-handed tactics and his insensitivity toward their religion. This all puts Pilate between a rock and a hard place. He wants to be just with Jesus, but at the same time, he's looking to save his own skin. Pilate is going to have to choose political expediency or personal integrity. Well, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. This was the Lithostratus. It was part of the Antonio Fortress, the Roman outpost in the temple. 
Realize these type of pavements exist all over the Roman Empire. They were traditional sites for Roman justice. In fact, history tells us that when Julius Caesar traveled into battle, he would carry a portable mosaic pavement that he would set up in order to judge his conquered opponents. Well, verse 14, now it was the preparation day of the Passover in about the sixth hour. Unlike the other gospel writers, John uses Roman time. It was the sixth hour or 6 a.m. The Jews counted the hours of the day from dawn. The Romans began at midnight in counting the hours. We'll talk about the preparation day in a moment. And Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. The motto of Rome was, Let justice be done, though the heavens fail. As a Roman, Pilate had a great respect for justice. And yet here he can't hold off the hatred of the Jews. When they call into question his loyalty to the Caesar, Pilate breaks and he gives in to their demands. In the end, he buckles under to the political pressure. I hope you're not buckling under to the pressure that might be applied to you in your faith. There is a legend that following Jesus' resurrection, Pilate's wife Claudia became a Christian. It's nice to think. Whereas Pilate suffered a different plight. Because of the Jews' persistent disapproval, his superior, Vitilius, ordered him back to Rome. But the disgraced governor never arrived. It's a 4th century church historian, Eusebius, who tells us that Pilate was so overcome by guilt, he committed suicide in his route to Rome. Verse 17. And he, bearing his cross went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. The Greek word is Calvaria, from which we get our word Calvary. It's a derivative of our English term cranium. Jesus was taken to the place of the cranium or the place of the skull. In Jerusalem, (coughs) north of the old city, Just outside the Damascus Gate is a former quarry. We always visit there on our tours. Solomon harvested granite from this site to use in the construction of the temple. But it left behind a rock cliff, which for years appeared eerily like a skull. Today, the site is in front of an Arab bus terminal, and the fumes from the buses are eroding the skull shape. But you can still see it if you look closely. And just beyond the cliff is a tomb, and that tomb is surrounded by a beautiful garden, hence a garden tomb. In 1883, a British general named Charles Gordon identified this rocky cliff as Golgotha, the place of the skull in Bible times. Today, the hill is called Gordon's Calvary. Romans performed their crucifixions by busy roads for all the populace to see. They wanted to intimidate the public. Golgotha is alongside the road to Damascus. 
We don't know, but either Jesus was crucified on top of the mountain, the hill of the skull, for all to see, or he was crucified at the base alongside the road in the face of the passers-by. And we really don't know what the shape of the cross was. Our idea of a cross is a traditional shape, the lowercase t. But Romans configured crosses in different ways. Some were X's. Others were in the shape of a Y. Others just a single I. Even sometimes the uppercase T would be used. We're not sure the actual shape of Jesus' cross. He was, though, required to carry its cross beam which may have weighed as much as 75 pounds. And he carried it quite a distance from the fortress at the heart of the city to Calvary, north of the city, outside the walls. When they got to Calvary, we're told, this is where they crucified him. And never skip over what that means, they crucified him. Crucifixion was the most heinous form of execution ever devised by man. In fact, C.S. Lewis once noted, the crucifixion did not become common in art until all who had seen a real one had died off. If you had been alive, if you had seen a live crucifixion, you would have had nightmares afterwards for months. The victim's body was stretched out on a piece of timber His ankles were coupled together and a single iron spike was driven through them into the wood. A large spike was also used to nail the victim's wrists to the timber. The wood was then lifted up in an upright position where the weight of the victim's body would press against the wounds, causing searing pain. Every breath required the crucified to press down on the wounds so that he could hike up his torso and expand his lungs. Some victims collapsed and suffocated to death. Other men died of a ruptured heart. Non-oxygenated blood gets sluggish. Your blood pressure drops. An overworked heart literally explodes inside a man's chest. So who crucified Jesus? The Jews? Well, yes, you could blame the Jews. They played a part. The Romans, certainly, they also played a part. But who really crucified Jesus? And here's where we need to whisper again. He did it for me. We drove the nails into Jesus' hands and feet. Our sin nailed him there. It's been said, every man is born with a fistful of nails And he dies with his hands empty. We're all guilty. And two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Here's another indignity suffered by Jesus, usually the worst criminal hung in the center. Verse 19, now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Now, Jerusalem was and still is a cosmopolitan city. Jews worldwide visit Jerusalem at Passover. Thus, this placard describing the accusation against Jesus 
could have been read in the three most common languages of the day, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Hebrew was the language of religion. Greek was the language of culture and philosophy. Latin was the language of law and government. And all three, really, religion and culture and government, had a hand in crucifying Jesus. Verse 21, Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews. But he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. He's had enough of these people. Pilate still didn't like the fact that they had bullied him into a verdict that he didn't want to issue. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart and also the tunic. Now the normal number of executioners dispatched to a crucifixion were four soldiers and one centurion. And like all Jewish men at the time, Jesus wore five pieces of clothing. He wore a turban or a headband. He wore sandals. He wore a belt. He wore an outer cloak. And then he wore an inner garment. Thus, there was a piece of clothing here for each of the four men, along with an inner tunic that they decided to split four ways. But now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. Jesus' inner tunic, his undershirt, would have been knee-length, like a woman's nightshirt. It was long, and it was seamless, which made it too valuable to rip in pieces. So, verse 24, they said, therefore among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. And John adds, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. It was all prophetic. All these details were foretold in advance. Here John quotes Psalm 22, verse 18. And here's the ultimate irony. Jesus bears the sin of the world while these soldiers gamble away his shirt. Think of it. God's back is torn and bleeding. His heart is now breaking. The veil in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom while these soldiers shoot craps for a cloak to avoid tearing Jesus' tunic. Talking about missing the point. They were so wrapped up in what they could get, their piece of the pie. Oh, I want that. They missed the most consequential act in all of history, which describes billions of folks on this planet today. They're after their stuff, their piece of the pie. Oh, we all love our stuff, don't we? Here's most people's prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray my Keurig machine to keep. I pray my stocks are on the rise and that my analyst is wise. That all my wine is I sip is white and that my hot tub is watertight. That racquetball won't get too tough and that all my sushi's fresh enough. I pray my smartphone upgrade works and my career path won't lose its perks. My microwave won't radiate and my condo won't depreciate. I pray my health club doesn't close and my money market grows 
And if I go broke before I wake, I pray my Volvo they won't take. Boy, rather fixate on your tunic. What are you chasing? What piece of the pie are you after? Rather than fixate on your stuff. Please take heed to Pilate's words. Behold the man. Behold the man. And remember, he did it for me. Verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Three Marys stood by Jesus as he hung from the cross. And it's interesting, these ladies showed more devotion, more courage than the male disciples. Check out the other three Gospels and you'll find another name mentioned among the ladies at the cross. Salome, the mother of James and John, was also there. Now it's possible that she was there in addition to the four women mentioned in verse 25. Or she could have been the lady who John refers to as his mother's sister, which would be provocative. For if Salome was Mary of Nazareth's sister, it would mean that Jesus, James, and John were all cousins. And that Jesus' mother, Mary, would have actually been John's aunt. This family connection, though, could help explain what happens next. For when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John's way of referring to himself, standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Usually a widow was taken in by her relatives. And it could be here that John and Mary were family and thus John took Mary into his household, and she lived under his roof for the rest of her life. Now, of course, we Protestants feel that it's appalling that Roman Catholics worship Mary and pray to Mary and ascribe to her traits that belong only to our Lord Jesus. And yet you Protestants, let me just warn you, to guard against a Mary backlash. For of all his disciples, Mary perhaps made the greatest sacrifices to follow her son and her Lord. Don't forget, three decades earlier, her whole world was turned topsy-turvy by the news that she would miraculously birth a child of the Holy Spirit. Now at the foot of the cross, Mary watches that child brutally tortured and executed. Her sacrifice had no atoning benefits But it did bring glory to God, and it exemplifies a wholehearted surrender that we should want to model. Think of what must have gone through Mary's mind as she stood there at the cross. Did she remember the myrrh, the embalming fluid that the wise men brought to her baby? Did the purpose of that embalming fluid finally hit Mary in this moment? Perhaps the words of old Simeon in the temple still rang in Mary's ears. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Now suddenly she feels the stab. Mary had surrendered all her dreams to the will of God, and now Jesus rewards her sacrifice by ensuring her future. He turns her over 
into the care of the Apostle John. She would spend forever, the rest of her life, under his roof. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, which was a long branch, and they put it to his mouth. Now this was the cheap vinegar wine that the soldiers drank. Earlier on the cross, Jesus had rejected the narcotic he was offered. This drink wasn't to deaden his pain. It was to simply moisten his lips so that he could utter his final words. And hyssop is a long leafy branch. Its use here means that Jesus must have been crucified several feet off the ground since they needed a branch in order to put the sponge near his lips to moisten his lips. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. This phrase, it is finished, is actually one word in the original language, tetelestai. And the word tetelestai was used in a number of ways. A servant finishing up his assignment might say to his boss, tetelestai, it's done. A priest inspecting a sacrifice and finding it faultless would declare, tetelestai. An artist, upon putting the finishing touches on his painting, might sigh, oh, tetelestai. And after a customer paid the balance of his bill, the merchant would write across the ledger, tetelestai, paid in full. And on the cross, Jesus did all this and more. God's servant completed the task he had been sent into the world to do. Our high priest initiated a flawless, sinless sacrifice. Jesus, the artist of God's poema, put the finishing touches on the portrait of our redemption. And our divine accountant paid in full the penalty for our sin. Jesus tied up all the loose ends of our salvation on the cross. There he finished his work of redemption, and now all that comes afterwards is the realization of that work. There was an eccentric old evangelist. His name was Alexander Wooten. One day he was working in the shop behind his house. He was visited by an exasperated young man. This fellow said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? Wooten replied, Ah, it's too late. The young man became desperate. Please, Isn't there anything I can do to be saved? The evangelist told him, it's too late for you to do anything. The work is already done. All you have to do is believe. And this is the glorious hope of the gospel. Again, here we should whisper, he did it for me. Verse 30, and bowing his head, He gave up his spirit. This word translated bow, it literally means to recline your head on a pillow. It's a beautiful picture, really. When Jesus finished his work on earth, he actually laid his head in the Father's lap, and he gave up his spirit. Notice Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. He wasn't a victim. He was the victor. Jesus voluntarily laid down his life for us. 
Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Notice John says that this was a special Sabbath or a high day. The normal Sabbath was on a Saturday, but during Passover week, at times Judaism would insert a second Sabbath on Friday. Now John here says that Jesus was crucified prior to this special Friday Sabbath. Thus, this day of preparation was Thursday. This is one reason that many Bible teachers, including myself, believe that Jesus was not crucified on Friday, but on Thursday. Now, in the big picture, it doesn't really matter. But I think we should be celebrating Good Thursday, not Good Friday. You'll have to decide yourself. Remember, too, Jesus predicted in Matthew 12, verse 40, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And it's hard to account for three days and three nights, that is 72 hours, if Jesus was only in the grave from Friday until Sunday morning. Some folks get around it by counting partial days. They'll count Friday as a partial day and Sunday as a partial day. But this phrase, days and nights, seems to imply 24 hours, 72 hours total. The Jewish day was reckoned from sunset to sunset. So since Jesus' crucifixion ended late in the afternoon, these women hurried up the burial so that they could observe this special Friday Sabbath that started at sundown. I believe Jesus was crucified on a Thursday. But do your own research and draw your own conclusion. Well, then the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. And this was Rome's sole act of mercy. Victims often hung on the cross for days. Vultures and rats would come and feed on the body. But to break their legs would put them out of their misery. Once you broke their legs, they could no longer push themselves up and expand their lungs and breathe. And so they would die quickly of asphyxiation. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Jesus was an exception to this Roman custom. The soldiers didn't need to break Jesus' legs since he was already dead. We'll know why in a minute. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Medical doctors tell us that the only time blood breaks down into water and plasma is in the case of a ruptured heart. It's interesting to me that Jesus literally died of a broken heart. There's also some intriguing symbolism displayed here. When God created a bride for Adam, you remember he opened his side and he removed a rib. And that rib became Eve. Now God opens the side of the last Adam, Jesus, and removes blood and water that he uses to fashion for Jesus a bride, the church you and me. Verse 35, and he, who, and he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. 
John was the one who had seen. He was the eyewitness. And he's reporting these events to stir up our faith. And you know, if John were here this morning, I think he would tell us to close our eyes and whisper, he did it for me. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. He quotes Exodus 12, verse 46. See, the law of Moses forbid the bones of the Passover lamb from being broken, and Jesus is our Passover. Verse 37 points out another fulfillment of prophecy. And again, another scripture, this time Zechariah 12, verse 10. They shall look on him whom they pierced. This prophecy looks all the way to the future, to the second coming of Jesus. Last days Israel will look on him and realize their mistake of rejecting him. This verse teaches that in the end, all Israel will repent and believe. Verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Notice this, Joseph had been a secret saint, an undercover Christian. Now the old boy comes out of the closet. And in a day like ours, when anybody and everybody with a twisted perversion is coming out and flaunting their sin, I think it's time for those of us who love Jesus to come out of the closet and say so. I hope you go public with your faith. You should. Now Joseph asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And there's an ancient record of this conversation. Apparently, Pilate said, you know, Joe, you're you're usually pretty stingy. Sure you want to give away a perfectly good tomb? Joseph answered, hoy vey, governor, you're right. But Jesus only needs it for the weekend. Turned out to be just a three-day lease. Verse 39. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a 100 pounds. He should have saved his money. This is the biggest waste of money in the history of the world. The burial spices that Jesus didn't need. You know, it's interesting, too, the amount of spices that Nicodemus supplies 100 pounds were the preparations for a king. I'm sure this revealed Nicodemus' feelings about Jesus. He had embraced Jesus as his king. I hope you have too. Verse 40, then they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. When Jesus came into the world, he was bound in swaddling clothes Now, when he exits this world, he's bound up in strips of linen cloth. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Jesus was laid in a new tomb, an unused tomb. It was chosen because of its proximity to Mount Calvary, the place of crucifixion. Now, let me close with a question. 
Do you know what flower is associated with Easter? Oops, I gave you a clue, didn't I? Do you know what flower is associated with Easter? It's the lily. And do you know why? It's because its blossom is shaped like a trumpet. In Bible times, trumpets were used to announce big events. And in these final two chapters, John is going to blow his trumpet and sound the good news that Jesus is risen. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. 